0: As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's word to the law of God, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and starting at the 12th verse. We'll read here the second table of the law, Exodus 20, starting at verse 12. And beloved, once more hear the inerrant, the infallible, the living God, his word, Exodus 20, the 12th verse. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. and May he bless it to us richly this evening. If you'll permit me to begin this evening something on an autobiographical note. I had a mentor who made consistently a staggering claim. He made it consistently and he made it with verve. And it was that kind of claim that if it came from anyone else, it would be subject to doubt. You wouldn't be too sure what to make of it. But this man, he stood in some place uh, that you would imagine at least deserved some credence. You see, the man who made the claim, he, he knew well his subject. You see, he was a member of several denominations, reformed denominations over the years, on, I think, three different continents. He not only ministered, but also trained multitudes of men for gospel ministry. And on top of that, he also knew most of the leading evangelicals, not only Reformed, but leading Protestants uh, from really the 1950s and on. Uh, he was a man who knew uh, Karl Barth's son, one of his sons, and also in his closet he had J. Gresham Machen's bowler hat. Now, why am I telling you all that? Well, the reason being is, this is a man who knew the Reformed world well. And that staggering claim that he made was actually about the Reformed churches and Christians that he came in contact with globally. From the pulpit and in private conversations, he intimated to me that he believed that of all of the difficulties the Reformed churches and Reformed Christians have with the law of God, it's the ninth commandment. It's the ninth commandment that we struggle with most. He said of all the commandments, every part of the divine law that we, we have before us and we've been med- meditating on for these past several months, he said it's the ninth commandment that he felt the Reformed churches struggled most with. It's a staggering claim but, as we begin our time this evening i I do wonder I wonder if, at the end of this hour, we could strongly disagree with such a statement. We may not come away saying that this is the principle the principal problem that we face, but surely it has to take a very high place on a very short list in order for us to look at this. Text, correctly, we of course need to take up the 16th verse in its entirety. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And the obvious question is, what what is the witness that's in view? Now, beloved, as you look at the text in its original, of course, that word is translated variously throughout the Old Testament. It's the same word that's translated testimony in other places of God's word. And the idea behind this is that this is a formal or a legal witness, This is is a word, a term, that is supposed to carry with it legal connotations. And so the text, the Ninth Commandment, immediately places us in the context of the courtroom. And you see this, just for example, in Deuteronomy 19. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him, which was strong then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. Again, what we have here is a courtly scenario, a courtly witness or a courtly testimony. And so the ninth commandment in its narrowest sense takes us into that judicial setting. It takes us to courtly dealings and it commands us uh, through the negative that all of those courtly transactions are done with truth and equity. In every context, whether it's in courts of church or of state, the commandment expressly commands that the witness be true. But beloved, of course, as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, every one of these commands is really an elliptical expression. It's an expression that, that is supposed to command either duties or to prohibit certain sins in a way that it represents classes of duties or sins. What I mean by that, of course, is that in this text, we're not only dealing with the court. We're obviously not only dealing with those formal settings. Of course, this command pertains to all truth. As you look at Zechariah 8, it's striking. In one verse, the prophet reminds Israel that the ninth commandment, yes, has an explicit connection with the court and also pertains to everything that is said. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And so the ninth commandment, though explicitly in the text in front of us, deals with the court. It goes and touches every aspect of human conversation. Speak the truth, every man, to his neighbor. And so, beloved, the command, of course, is not just for judges. It's not just for those who are summoned in a formal sense. It is for every man to deal only in the truth and in every instance. But I suppose, friend, if if you were to take up perhaps older commentaries on the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, If you were even to consult our catechisms, you you might find something that, at least on a popular level, it it would be kind of surprising. You see, as you take up those older commentaries or catechisms, what you'll find is that in explicating the ninth commandment, the older writers were very clear that not only was this a commandment that required truth-telling in every instance, it was also a command and strikingly in equal parts, about charitable dealings with our neighbor. Striking, and we'll see that in time, but why do you think that might be? Well, given what we've said thus far, beloved, you'll, you'll recognize that, first of all, we are taken into a courtly setting. We're dealing with our neighbor. There, there, there is no way to escape that in our text. We are concerned with our neighbor, intimately. But beloved, as you think throughout the scriptures, how even private conversations are described. What words in an informal context, what they have in terms of an ethical value. I think you'll find that there is a sense in which scripture recognizes that there is is a kind of external court that's neither civil or ecclesiastical. And what do I mean? Remember Christ's words he says every idle word that men shall speak they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment in other words every word that is spoken in any context Christ says is a solemn is a solemn moment every word before the bar of heaven carries significant weight not only those in the courtroom you can go a step further. As you look at, again at Matthew 5, Christ says this. He says, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the counsel. And whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Again, beloved, what Christ does here is he says that even your informal speech is solemn before God. And what does that amount to? Well, if you hold all of those things together, friend, then you recognize that there's a sense in which you and I can say every conversation you and I have in a very basic level is like a courtly transaction. It is every word has with it solemnity. Every word is scrutinized under the judgment of God. And so there is a kind of external court that's neither civil or ecclesiastical that concerns our neighbor. And, of course, there is also that internal court. Christ says in John 7, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And, of course, when Christ is speaking there, he's speaking about the whole man, whether he's speaking actually to a neighbor, about someone else, or he simply has a disposition that's censorious. In either case, he says, judge not according to appearance. And friend, I suppose that text falls into a whole class of texts that have almost become commonplace not only in the church, but in in the culture. The great judge nots of the Gospels. I want you to step back just for a moment and, and think about how Christ is communicating that to us. You see... What he does here is he appropriates legal language. In fact, he actually appropriates a legal status to every man. What do I mean? Quite honestly, you could, as a first century reader, read these statements and say Christ is essentially saying, pass not sentence according to appearance, but pass sentence according to righteousness or equity. Here Christ deals with men individually as though they themselves in some capacity were like judges. Now, friend, I've taken you through those things just to highlight why it is that, that, that this commandment has, is so far-reaching and concerns our neighbor on every level. It concerns our neighbor, of course, in those courtly contexts, but it also concerns our neighbor just in private conversations. And as we looked at John 7, it even concerns our neighbor in any kind of judgment that we as individuals might pass. And so, of course, beloved, this commandment calls us, commands us to deal truthfully and charitably in all things. You must deal truthfully and charitably in all things. And briefly this evening, I want us to walk through this as we have the previous commandments. I want us to look at the essence of the commandment itself the equity or the reasonableness of the command, and finally its exercise as it's held out to us in Scripture. So take, first of all, the essence of the command. If we divide the courts between external and internal, if we divide the courts, as I believe Scripture does, where where men who are in authority are concerned, but also when men who are, are simply speaking in an informal capacity are kind of passing judgment, are almost passing sentences, and friend, this command requires us to see that all lying in any context, courtly or informal, is here proscribed. Of course, that's explicitly put to us, Colossians 3.16, lie not one to another. And what is a lie? Well, very briefly, beloved, it is all intentional falsehood. Uh, we, if you look at the Latin just for a moment, the It means simply opposition to one's mind. Lying in a biblical ethic is simply all intentional telling a falsehood. Every case. Now, beloved, as we look at this text and we look at the whole of Scripture, we do then find an answer to a question that's often raised. Is there a justifiable lie? Is it ever okay to tell an untruth? And beloved, the answer to that question is no. No. As you look throughout the scriptures, there is no allowance in any case for any intentional falsehood. Even if you go to the Egyptian midwives, even if you go to the cases of Rahab and others in scripture, you'll find no, not one single commendatory word taken from those examples. Not one. This is why in the history of the church, this this question has been answered negatively and consistently. Uh, Augustine put it this way. He says, whoever thinks that there is any kind of lie which is not sinful, deceives himself grossly when he thinks himself an honest deceiver of others. It's his tractate on, on, on lying. But that also extends, beloved, to all kinds of things. Take, for instance, reservations, mental reservations in making oaths. That is, when men would make an oath, perhaps the most common being uh, that of the Jesuit, the Jesuit would be asked, are you a priest? And the man would say no, because the man, the Jesuit priest, would in his own mind supply the words of Baal. Of course, he was not a priest of Baal, and so he said no, he was not a priest at all. That here is also prohibited. But, beloved, even the scriptures go further than that. All false doctrine is also contrary to the ninth commandment. Just take, for instance, what the apostle says. He says, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Even false doctrine here is prescribed. Now, beloved, we can go further, and this is where we come into the charitable elements of the command. This commandment also prohibits any kind of unjust misconstrual of somebody else's words or intentions. You see this, of course, in the psalmist's example. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. They took his his peaceful words, abused them, turned them, misconstrued them to make them warlike. Or take Psalm 69. The psalmist says, when I wept and chastened myself with fasting that was to my reproach. In other words, the psalmist's enemies misconstrued what should have been seen as signs of humility and contrition and turned them to the psalmist's reproach. This too is prohibited. On the other hand, beloved, the commandment also requires that none are silent. None are silent when the truth is maligned. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. The prophet abraded Israel in Isaiah 59.4. It was part of their sin that no one cried out to lawful authority when they ought to have done so. It was a sin, a mark upon society when truth lay in the streets and none contended for it when it needed it. But also... This prescribes censoriousness. This also prescribes that kind of speech where perhaps we're telling the truth, but it's unseasonable or it's done for wrong reasons. Proverbs 15.23, a word spoken in due season, how good is it? And Of course, then the opposite is that if that word is not spoken seasonably, howsoever true, how evil is it? How dangerous can it be? A fool, says Proverbs, uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. We can go further. Of course, this commandment then also then prescribes slander. Slander is lying about somebody else so as to induce his dishonor. Reviling, that is when somebody is openly, openly intending the dishonor of somebody else. Backbiting, that is whenever the same thing is done but in secret. Tail-bearing, that is whenever a falsehood or even something that is true is spoken only so as to destroy friendship. In other words, it's the intention that distinguishes backbiting from tail-bearing. And note what the the scriptures say. Thou shalt not go up and down as a tail-bearer among thy people. The commandment requires us to not be those who are going around with the intention to injure or dishonor our neighbor. And also then that also includes that we are those who refrain from speaking of others' infirmities unnecessarily. Proverbs 25, debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself and discover not a secret to another, Proverbs 25 and verse 9. And then finally, beloved, though we could go go into further depth, of course, this commandment requires that we defend others' goods, the good name of others, as well as ourselves. Job's example is: "Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me." Now, beloved, all of those, all of those ideas that we've just raised pertain to the externals. What about that internal court? What about what this commandment says about our own disposition, our own souls? Well, friend, the Scriptures actually hold this out to us in very explicit ways. Note that the disposition that men are to have to the truth is a disposition that's not only not not voiced, but is one that is stamped as it were upon the heart. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart is described as the godly man in Psalm 15. Note what he says there, speaking the truth in his heart. That is, he does not give himself over to meditate on falsehoods or surmisings or whisperings. He holds himself in the boundaries of truth in his heart. He has a disposition to hold to the truth. And of course, that's the opposite of what we saw in Jeremiah 42. The godly man in Psalm 15 holds the truth in his heart. In Jeremiah 42, God comes through his prophet to the remnant of Judah and says, you dissembled in your heart. Beloved, we could go further in that, but the idea is just the same. That here, the law of God pertains to that internal court where the man is judging matters, and God says he requires truth to be there as well. Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 144, puts it to us this way. That that also means that in that internal court, men are are commanded... To have an unwillingness to admit of an evil report of their neighbor. In question 145, the divines write that that also proscribes men from receiving and countenancing an evil, support, evil report and evil surmisings. In other words, beloved, the commandment is just this that, that you and I, in our own mental cords, as we think of our neighbor and deal with our neighbor secretly and privately, our disposition is to be one of charity and equity. Note again how the, the apostle describes this for us in 1 Corinthians 13: "Charity thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things." And beloved, on those notes, I'll, I would direct you just back to our own catechisms, questions 142, 44 and 145 of the, of the larger. And it also requires us to have a disposition of humility with regard to ourselves. The commandment in Romans 12 is just this. We are not to mind high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. What is pride? Pride is not just. It's not just a thinking on our own abilities and gifts or graces. It is an overvaluing of them. And so a falsehood. And so, beloved, as we look at the essence of this commandment, that does raise a point of application for us. What is a kind of test that we can use as we deal with others in our speech and as we deal with others in our own heart? Of course, the first question is, is it true? Whatever we say or whatever we are thinking. And really that leads us to the question, are the grounds of these thoughts reasonable? If it can't be proven in an ecclesiastical or civil court, is it something that I should believe myself? It's amazing, beloved, if you think about even how we speak about other things. Uh, How little do we really know? And if we're using these tests, beloved, how little will we actually say? Here the the law of God reminds us that we are to be people who make conscience of truth and keep ourselves within that balance. And why is that? What is the reasonableness of the command? Well, beloved, the reason, of course, is that all truth is God's truth. God is the author of truth, as the devil is the author of all lies. And, beloved, that means that even in the most mundane of things, even in the smallest aspect of our lives, here we're supposed to remember that the true things that are there are to be regarded conscionably as God's. If the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, if it's true that in him we live and move and have our being, then, beloved, every aspect of our lives that we might speak or think must be squared to his measure of truth. And also, beloved, of course, God has the right to command this because he is sovereign over all courts, whether that which is in the heart of man or that which is in, in private conference or in church or in state. Here, God reminds us he requires truth in the inward parts. But finally, beloved, as we close, what are examples of this in the scriptures? I'll take just for example the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle writes to the church in Corinth, he puts it to us this way, that it was his habitual practice to thank God always on their behalf for the grace of God which was given By Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, that's the church in Corinth. If you read through all the rest of that text, you'll recognize that the apostle has many words of rebuke for them. But what is his disposition? Has he here renounced that they have any grace? Has he here regarded them as all hypocrites? No, in the court of his own breast, the apostle says that he, he finds them gracious and praises and thanks God for bestowing such. As we've been looking in the midweek at the church in Galatia, remember how the apostle deals with them. Though they had regarded him as their enemy, though they themselves were not possessed of a charitable disposition toward him, yet in his own judgment, here is his reply, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He calls them brethren, But in his own court, he waits to pass judgment until, of course, he has reasonable grounds. In the epistle to the Hebrews, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Hebrews 6 and verse 9. But we can go a step further. It's not only in our charitable dealings with others that the apostle demonstrates here a real a real and earnest, conscientious holding to the law. But beloved, you remember the Apostle's experience in standing for the truth when others were silent. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. 2 Timothy 4.16. The Apostle was a man who was willing to stand when others were silent. When there was just cause for him to speak, here he presided, Sorry, provides for us a clear example of one who would not let the cause go without defense, even if it meant he stand alone. And, beloved, when we look at this text, of course, we are reminded that as the commandment requires us to speak the word in season, the principal example, the one who always spoke truth, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Beloved, here you have in Christ the perfect example of the one, of course, who spoke truth always and only, but also the one who spoke the truth seasonably with wisdom. A friend, as we close this evening just one word of application for us. If I can take you back to what my mentor had said, that it's in the Reformed Church that that you'll find most struggles with the Ninth Commandment. As I asked him to explain it to me, his point was this, that while overt lying is not something that we are likely to engage in. Friend, it's very much the case that in our internal courts, in our dealings with others, this commandment presents to us many challenges.
1: To have that charitable
0: disposition to our brother, but also to keep from tail-bearing, gossiping, and the like. Friend, I think... If we hold those things before us, certainly it is the case that this is this is a commandment that should search us. Beloved, well, it's it's even well known in the world. It's well known even by those who have never professed Christianity, never darkened a door in the church. That in these regards we struggle. And so our calling, of course, is to be those who who make conscience of the truth were those who are quick to defend it, those who are quick to speak it and to speak it seasonably, those who are quick to deal with our neighbor in charity, those who are quick, in other words, to model Christ, who, as we've already read, was the one who spoke truthfully in all things, spoke the word in season to him that is weary. We praise him and we bless him that this is our Christ, the one who could only have false accusers, accuse him of any violation of the law, and the one who fulfilled that law for even the likes of ourselves. Amen.